Thanks, Cortland. There's that moment when, when he starts talking and reading a message from Darren that there's probably a bunch of you out there realizing for the first time, oh, Darren's not here. I could have slept in, could have done all these things. He would never have known. He's the whole way in Togo. Probably also asking, how did he send a text message from Togo? Because that does work. But before I start, I just, when I was sitting out there and getting to enjoy worship, I realized that one thing that we don't do very often, and I just want to take a moment to recognize Ren for how, how good of a job that he does. And, you know, he's not the kind of person that wants anybody to say those kind of things. But, I mean, even right now, the last two weeks, he's had to deal with a, a blown speaker, and we have one on order, and we're, it hasn't come in yet. But the fact that he's just so diligent and serves us every week, I just felt like honoring him. So, yeah, you're stuck with me. Uh, for the next little bit. Uh, but I promise, you know, I won't go too long. We'll get you home. You can eat lunch. You can watch some Olympics and get you back to probably what's, you know, in the forefront of most of your people's minds, which is, you know, debating people on whether or not we should eat at Chick-fil-A or not this week. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go anywhere else for that. Before I start, I, wanted to th- I want you guys to think of something. If you'll do something with me, close your eyes and think of something. Now, you don't have to close your eyes. I just, I've never done that when I spoke, but I just wanted to see if it works, and it does work. But I want you to think of a time of your life when you had something that was pressing. Maybe it was a conversation you had to have with a, a boss or a coworker, uh, a spouse, some situation in life that was coming up that you were really, really worried about. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to think about it because I'm actually going to ask you to share uh, a couple volunteers uh, to tell, you know, what, one thing or something like that. Now, I want you to think of a time that ends up completely positive or uh, where you thought this was going to be a really negative experience. I'm not afraid of silence, so I will stand here if nobody volunteers in a couple of minutes to just give you a heads up. So here's, a volunt- here's an example. A few years back, I was working a job, and I was sitting, at, sitting in bed, and I knew that the next morning I had to do a presentation to a boss, uh, to my boss, he was a CEO, and it was going to be a very uncomfortable conversation because he had presented something the week before, and I was supposed to run with it, but I'd been given some information and did some research, and I realized that it was the wrong decision. Now, we've all been in those places where when you're not in charge, you have to do that anyways, but I felt like I really needed to make a strong case for us to not do this because it was going to cost us a lot of money. So I remember sitting there all night I just couldn't sleep at all, just sitting there thinking in my head, all right, here's what I'm going to say. Oh, he's, he, of course he's going to get mad. And you start going through the list of consequences. It's kind of similar to, like, if you're not feeling good and you go on the webmd.com and all of a sudden you have cancer, and, like, instead of just a cold. It's that same thing. Your brain just keeps going, keeps going. So I get up the next morning, and I knew, realized that there were two things that, for me, personally, make me feel confident when I go into a meeting. One is if... I feel comfortable in what I'm wearing, you know, put on a nice shirt, maybe iron it. <laughs> Amber's looking at me, you would never iron it. That's true, I wouldn't, but I might wake you up to have you do it. But, and then the second thing is, you know, a good power beard, you know, but that's just me. And I didn't have that beard that day, but I did have the, the nice shirt. So I walked in that day and, and, I, and I walked into his office and I was like, hey, do you have a sec? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And he was in there answering email and, you know, barely paying attention. And I was like, well, I need to tell you something. And I laid out this presentation. 
here's the research that I've done, here's what I've found, and uh, I think we're wrong to go this route. And then I stood there. Just kind of looked at him, and, and he did one of these. You know, uncomfortably long, like 10 seconds that seems like it's, it's like three years. Just sitting there, and finally he goes, yeah, that makes sense. Make it happen. And I, was, I walked out, and I was just like, I just spent like a week, ever since he announced that, just worried about this situation. And then in one sentence, he just, eh, yeah, that makes sense. Just walked out. I didn't know how to handle that. It was just kind of like you wanted more resolution. But for me, that was good enough. Did anybody think of an example in your life? Anybody? Somebody. Huh? All right. Okay, bail me out here. I'm going to have one more person. So. No, I just went through that this last week. I was selling my truck, and the guy kind of haggled me down a little bit more than I wanted to be haggled down. And, and uh, that was on, I think, a Tuesday. Uh, I was bringing the truck to him on a Saturday. And then on Sat or Thursday, my brakes started acting up on my truck. And on those trucks, the brakes, it cost you a 1000 bucks to do the front two brakes. You take them in. So I was uh, anticipating... Uh, not getting any more money, that he was going to haggle me down some more. So then, like, the moral dilemma starts, and it's like, well, do I really tell him? You know what I mean? He might not notice until, you know, it's intermittent, you know. But then I had to face that, you know, doing the right thing kind of thing. So I anticipated going in there and getting, you know, less money than I wanted. And it was kind of funny because, I, you know, I prayed right as we pulled into the parking lot, and I was like, God, you know, I'm going to do the right thing, and it's going to suck. So what do you want to do with it? You know, so I went ahead and... and uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, that was it, you know, and, and I go in there and I tell the guy, hey, look, you know, this is what's going on. He says, no worry, no, no, no big deal, you know, and I was like, you sure? You Go drive it first, you know, make sure, you, you know, you don't want to rip me off for some more money or whatever. So he has this, and I'm telling her, she's in there getting the check. I'm like, well, hold on. He's going to try to talk me out of some more money, you know, and the buddy got in the truck, drove it down the street. Yeah, I don't, you know, don't worry about it, whatever. So I got what I expected to get, and it wasn't, you know, a big thing, and it was the same thing all night the night before, and, and that whole, from Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the whole time, I'm, like, wrestling with this moral dilemma of doing the right thing, and it worked out great. And they want to do fishing charters and buy the furniture. Too. And they're going to buy the couch. Oh, and they want to buy furniture, and, do, wow, that's amazing. And if you're like me, you're all jealous that you couldn't buy that truck, because that's awesome. <laughs> Anybody else on this side? Anybody want to bail me out? No? Okay, Adam will bail me out. Um, I, I play in a band called Stellar Cart, and we uh, started playing shows in 2005, and I think it was 2007, we got the invite to go play over in the Netherlands, uh, and it was, it's this big event that they do every year, and it's inside this indoor soccer stadium for 36,000 people, and we'd been playing shows for like anywhere from 25 to maybe 500 people, and uh, so I was like, this is going to be great. And so it just keeps building, though, because they're like, oh, yeah, and it's, it's going to be live telecast throughout the entire nation of the Netherlands. I'm like, okay. Uh, and it's going to be webcast, so there's going to be millions of viewers all over the world. I'm like, oh, awesome. And, uh, and then I find out once we get over there that we're the last band to play. Like, Chris Tomlin's playing before us, and, like, there's all these other bands that are playing that are really good. And so we're... And we're the last band, and they're like, we, we believe you guys are going to rock it out. And I'm like, okay. And so, I'm like, of course I didn't sleep at all the night before. I'm freaking out. And, and, it, and it was my birthday, too. And so on top of that, they like 36,000 people singing me happy birthday before we go on stage. And, and then uh, we're about to go on, and they're like, all right, 
don't mess up because it's all live and we can't, we can't do any redos. I was like, okay. I'm like, don't break a string. Don't miss a note. Don't forget a chorus. And so, and, and then we finally got out on stage and it was, I was just shaking. I was freaking out. And then uh, once, once we started playing, everything was, everything was okay and it went fine and, and uh, everybody loved it. But it was, that was the most freaked out I've ever been and, and didn't sleep for like 48 hours before the show. Thanks, Adam. What's actually funny about that story is last week, Amber and I and her sisters, we had some friends in town uh, from the Netherlands and in Belgium who we, we met when actually we were on tour with their band Everlife when we were playing. And actually, I was telling Adam that while we were over there, one of the things that, one of the questions, and we had a question answer time during one of the shows was, are you guys boyfriends? Uh, is Stella Cart your boyfriends? And, and so last week when they were here, he was over there and they were all disappointed. But there's some really good examples. You know, um, Tim Bassanio, he's not here today, but a few years back, he was actually my pastor. And during one of his messages, he actually said something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. He said, life is full of massive problems, most of which will never happen. And remember, he said that, and I wrote it down, and I've told him since, and he's like, I said that? I'm like, yeah, Tim. If you know him, that's not really shocking. But... But it's true. Life is full of massive problems, most of which will never happen. You think about it in the shower, you get yourself all worked up. This is going to happen. This deadline's never going to be reached. And you always, not always, but most of the time, you end up reaching it. When Majid was here, I guess a couple months ago, he said something while he was speaking. He said he doesn't speak about things like cussing because he struggles with it. He listed things that he doesn't speak on because of that. He doesn't feel like he should be speaking about those things. But then he said he can speak on forgiveness. Oh, because that's something that he has lived and that's something that he has absolutely experienced. I feel the same way about the topic that I'm going to speak on this morning. The topic is uncertainty. I can give you a whole list of topics and things and struggles that I will, you will not hear me speak on up here. When I read in Romans, and Paul really warns people uh, about doing that, about spending so much time concentrating on the things that you struggle with, I think that's sometimes what trips up uh, pastors and a lot of leaders, is you're struggling with something, and so much on, on the forefront of your brain that you start preaching about it over and over and over, and you have this big political stance, and that's just setting your platform so much higher for when you fall. But, you know, when it talks... When I talk about uncertainty, all of a sudden I kind of jump up because I've had a lot of uncertainty in my life. You know, uh, last Saturday, I got the opportunity to perform the wedding for my friends, well, a lot of our friends, Ronnie Lee and Lydia. And it was just a really cool day. But when I was sitting, sitting there before it started and doing the, the wedding, I'm just kind of going through the last few years of my life. And I thought, no way in the world would I ever have thought that that's where I would be. And I'm just, I still, I'll be honest, I, I don't know how to put all these pieces of my life together. Uh, the part where I am an ordained pastor, but that's not what I do for a living. But it is a part of my life. It's kind of what I do. You know, there's all these different things. There's all this uncertainty that's just always around. In fact, actually, uh, you can see some of those insecurities at different times. Like when Ronnie Lee's dad, whose actual name is Ronnie Lee, because Ronnie Lee Booth is the third so that gets really confusing when all three of them there. You don't know who's Ron, who's Ronnie Lee, who's Ronnie, who's... But he, he looks at you and goes, you the preacher? My first thought was, I think so. 
but I didn't say that. Going, yeah, yeah, my name's Jeremy, and oh, great, great. And, you know, just those moments of life where there's so much uncertainty. But, you know, when Darren and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, when we knew that I was about to speak, we were just kind of talking about the state of our church and with all these new people, and we have people all over the, the country and all over the world serving. And, you know, this topic of uncertainty and hope and future is something that's been on my mind for a few years. And how many people were here last year when Darren left and I, and I spoke? Nice, not very many of you. I say nice because it's a very similar topic, and actually I'm going to use those same references I did before. Um, but it's on purpose, just so you know. I'm not just copping out and being like, ah, I don't feel like doing something new. Uh, Darren and I were talking about that, and the one theme in our church is change. It's uncertainty. You can, in every single row here, you can start talking to different people, and there's something that they're uncertain about. And what's amazing with this group of people is it's the big things. It's not just like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to eat for lunch. It's like, I don't know where I'm going to live tomorrow. You know, what state am I going to be in? Am I going to go to another country? It's like these are huge, huge things that are on the forefront of people's mind. So whenever I first got ordained, I started thinking about how to study. Because I, I really wanted to learn how to study. And so I sat down with Darren and I had this whole thing. I'm like, all right, here we go. All right, Darren, teach me how to study. Now, what I didn't anticipate was that Darren's kind of a freak of nature in the fact <laughs> that he's just been in a constant state of studying since he's been like eight years old. That's not fair, first of all. And so he's in a constant state of reading, and he doesn't just read. It's not just the Bible. He's reading all these commentaries, but then he's reading the Wall Street Journal, and he's just soaking up information at all times, which is why... Well, he gives a message, we all can learn so much, and there's always more that we can dive into every single week. But I realized after talking with him that, huh, that's not going to be my answer, because uh, I'm not going to be able to do that how he does. That's not how my brain clicks. So I met with a guy that, um, that he kind of walked me through what he started to do, and what he's been doing for years has been following different leaders, different, different blogs, and reading from people way smarter than him, and he's been a pastor for a long time, and he'll just take these different things that they're reading, and then he'll do some of his own research, and he'll put it together, and it's just been a really great opportunity for him to, to, to learn that way. And so one of the things that I told him, and I've been learning a lot lately in my life, is that the older that I get, the less I feel I know. And it's not a matter of me not growing. It's not a matter of me not, to use a double negative. Um, every day I'm learning stuff, learning new things every day of my life. But I'm also becoming well aware of things I don't know. Who here has been watching the Olympics? And most of us. I've been watching some of the divers. And I feel like their experience on a diving board is totally different than my experience on a diving board. Anybody else feel that way? I get out to the edge. First of all, you have to walk out there. You know, you don't just hurry up and do it. You get there. All right. Water's still there. Good. You know, you get there and, and you think you have this vision in your mind like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dive. It's going to be perfect. All my friends are going to be like, yeah, that was awesome. But no, that's not what you do. What you do is you chicken out and you do a cannonball because you can't do, do that wrong. And everyone laughs and you just get out of the water and you're done. But these guys, they, 
they do that, whether it's springboard or just a high dive, they get up there and they do these twirls and these flips and these, all those different things because they've learned how to do that. They've studied it. They've perf- perfected that. And it just absolutely blows my mind because that's another area of life. You know, every day that I'm walking, watching the Olympics, I'm learning, wow, I have no idea how to do that. I don't know how to skeet shoot. Those guys would kill me at, at ping pong. And why in the world is ping pong in the Olympics? But, you know, the diving was one that's just been hitting me really hard, and I just looked. And then, you know, if the embarrassment of doing that isn't bad enough, then you have to stand there in a Speedo and do it. You know, it's just how much more uncomfortable can it be? Here's why I mentioned all this. As I've been trying to learn all these different things, one of the dangers that I felt like would happen is if I ever felt like I started having it all figured out. And I'm here today to tell you that I don't have it figured out. And so I wanted to read... Uh, this blog by a guy named Skip Moen. Pastor John McGuire, uh, a good friend of mine, had given me some info on how he studies, and that's where this guy came up. And he has his doctorate from Oxford, and he's very, very smart. And he, the actual written goal on his website is this. It's, his web, it's to make the depths of God's word come alive for anyone who searches. This is a blog that I used last year, and I'm going to use it again. So here's the scripture that he used. It's a very familiar one. It's Jeremiah 29 11. It said, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. A lot of us have heard that many, many times. But what this blog was written about is actually something that just blew my mind. So what he does in scripture is he'll take the, the words the actual scripture, how it's laid out, then he'll take the words and he'll find either the Hebrew or the Greek, but he doesn't just translate them straight. And that's easy to do. You can find a lot of websites to do that. But what he's kind of, has become his specialty is he takes those words and he also takes the twist and he starts learning how the Hebrew people or how the Jews of that time would actually have understood that word. Because sometimes that's a big difference. You know, something will say the, di- the difference of a word might mean something you know, up north, even versus the south. When I first moved here, I worked for a finish line, and I asked the guys to sweep the floor. And I came back, and I'm like, there's stuff everywhere on the carpet. Because I grew up saying, using the sweeper. For them, sweeping was using a, a broom. See? And Shannon's like, yeah, it's, it's a broom. <laughs> so, you know, just those little words, that can mean something totally different. So I want to read this. And I'm going to read just bits and pieces of it because I've realized that after I've read a lot of it, it you need to read it like five or six times to get everything. So I'll just kind of touch on the highlights. All right. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and hope. The last part of this verse reiterates the intention of God's plan. God has two goals in mind. The first is a future. The word is a heart. What is unusual about this word is it literally means afterwards, backwards, or after part. So how can this be about the future? H.W. Wolf says that the Hebrew concept of time is like a man rowing a boat. He sees where he has been, but the future is toward his back. He backs into the future. It is entirely unknown to him because it is behind him. This, This picture has a very powerful theology in it. First, God must set our course since only he can see behind us. But secondly, we, we have as our guide what we see, the course we have been following. We see the past because we are facing it. The past is in front of us. 
No wonder our history with God is so important. It is not just about where we came from. It is the visible guide for our course in the future. Finally, there's a great connection with the idea that we must trust God's direction and not fear. If we are backing into the future, we must trust the guide. We cannot see where we are going, but he can. There's a tremendous example of this, of this word in a story from Genesis, when Lot and his wife ran from the destruction of Sodom. They were told not to look back. Lot's wife did look back and saw her future. She died there. Looking back was a choice not to obey the guide who was taking her out of harm's way. You know, so much of our lives are consumed with trying to control what is in the future, how we're looking ahead. You know, there's certain times of life that you can do that, but there's quite often times that you cannot. For me, when I think of a time in my life when I knew the future and I was running towards it is whenever I knew that I was going to marry Amber because there wasn't anything that could step, you know, between that day and me. And if you ever want to hear funny stories, talk about, ask me about the producers who tried to step in between there because they got a talking to. But there's so many moments in life that we have no idea what's facing us. That, that part where it said the Hebrew concept of time is like a man rowing a boat. He sees where he has been, but the future is toward his back. His, he backs into the future. It is entirely unknown to him. Because it's behind him. This last year, whenever I was reading that and just really thinking about it, I started picturing a rowing team. You know, in the Olympics, if you've watched that, it's a pretty amazing thing. I, th- I don't think that a lot of the huge groups rowing teams have been, been aired yet, but there's been a lot of uh, single, uh, the doubles. But I found this video last year and we showed it, but I want to show it to you again. So Jonathan, if you have that ready. I thought that was a cool video. It shows eight men rowing in perfect unison. They're all unique and independent. They could stop rowing at any point. They could get out of sync. How do they know where they're going? You know, fitness, even breathing, are all important to being effective. Of course, they practice like crazy. They have special machines that even build their muscles in a certain way to correct for the rowing motion. But if you notice in that that picture, that's the type of rowing that has a guide. There's somebody in the front with the headset on that's giving commands. That person is the only person who can actually see what they're facing. The rest of the team has to sit there and trust that what they're doing is correct and that the timing is right. You know, they, uh, one thing that I also found out is that experienced rowers will start 
to be able to use their wake. They'll actually see their wake and they'll have an idea of where they're going. If they're getting too close to the shore, if something's up ahead that they need to watch out for, and also if they're starting to get out of, out of rhythm, they can tell that all by looking at their wake. You know, rowing has so many parallels to our lives and to the scripture that we're talking about in Jeremiah. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, or declares Yahweh, plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, how often do we look at our past and remember the failures? How often do we look at our past and use that as a guide for our future? Probably not as many times. And most importantly, how, many, how often do we look at our past and forget that there has been so much happening way before that we ever came to earth? So I'm going to read a little bit more of this. Did you know that this famous passage in Jeremiah is connected to Paul's remarks about transformation in Romans 12? When it talks the word hope. Probably not. When we read this verse, we don't think like a rabbi. We think like good Greek Christians. We imagine that God has a special plan for us, a plan that will prosper us into the future because we want to be prosperous. We hope that what God says is true. So we wait for our ship to come in. With that kind of interpretation, we might as well be waiting for a ship in the middle of the desert. This is the part that I'm going to kind of only take bits and pieces of because to read it all just really wouldn't make sense. There's two different words that are typically used in Hebrew to describe the word hope. And they have very different meanings. And what's interesting is that in Jeremiah, the word for hope is the same one that Paul uses in, in Romans. It's not the usual word for hope. It's an actual picture of what comes from being nailed down over the horizon. Something assured in the future. The other description of it is it means a measuring line. It's used in Isaiah and 2 Kings in the Psalms to describe a standard of measurement. What both mean, though, is hope and measure to provide a subtle reminder to his Greek-slash-Hebrew audience that God's standard is directly tied to the hope that God gives. Don't you think that maybe all of this points to Yeshua? to God. It implies that, that God provides a measuring standard, not that God supplies a quantity of faith. Then wouldn't the reader who knew Hebrew also recognize and realize that the same word speaks about what is nailed beyond the horizon? Doesn't this suggest at least a little bit that God's measuring standard and God's provision of hope are both tied to something beyond our vantage point? He not only speaks of completely human expectations for this life, but he also gives us a glimpse of something beyond us. If we want to use most productively what God gives, we will set our sights on eternal measures. This is something that we can take with us and that gives us hope. At some point, if you get the opportunity to, to read this, the, the full blog by Skip Moen, it's pretty amazing. The words that are used, it's, it's fascinating to see that those were written so many years apart, but it takes a different twist than the way that I've always looked at the scripture of Jeremiah 29, 11. Because a lot of times I've used that scripture to just be like, oh, well, God's got my back. No doubt. This is going to be great. Everything's going to be perfect. And this is all working towards something that's great. And then you're like, well, well, what happened when this part didn't end up how I expected? And what I really like about this is when it's talking about God's measuring line, 
his measuring line looks totally different than what mine does. A few years back, I got, got a vision. I was sitting, and when I say I, I got a vision, I, I use that very sparingly because I'm not the type of person that just says like, oh, hey, God wrote this on the wall. But I was sitting in a moment where I was feeling just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, and just really confused about a lot of things. And I remember sitting, sitting in my house, and Amber was on tour, and so I was alone, and so I was just sitting there, and I remember God showing me this picture of me, of him standing at the edge, of standing in heaven, looking at the world. And it started with the actual picture of a world, like we've all seen from space. But then he zoomed in, and all of a sudden it was me, seeing me in this moment, sitting on the couch. And he absolutely saw what I was going through. Didn't say anything, of course, but just was sitting there looking at it. And I was like, wow, okay, he does see me here. And then he zoomed out a little bit, and I saw a timeline. And the timeline was my life. And what I saw behind me was all these events of my life that led up to me right now. I couldn't see the events in the future because I hadn't lived those. But I saw myself as a little kid. I saw the moments when my parents told me that we were going to move to a different town and I was all worried and scared. I saw different moments of my life that all got up to here. And I felt like in that moment God told me, he's like, I wish that you could see what I see right now. How this moment right now that you're experiencing this hurt and this frustration is one of the key things that you're going to go through the development of who you are to make you into this person. But I see this. Would you trust me that that's what I see? And in that moment, I remember sitting there like, whew, that's pretty heavy. But all of a sudden, I had a little bit more peace because I had a hope that God could see what I could not see. And then after that, he zoomed out a little bit more, and I saw three or four of my family members all at the same time seeing these timelines. And then I zoomed out a little bit more, and I could see just tons of people I didn't know all at once. And I see it's all waving together, this picture of this beautiful timeline that I couldn't see. Because so often when I'm sitting in my own mess, when I'm sitting there in my own situation, I forget that there are people all around me experiencing something totally different than me. And so it kept zooming out, and I just kept seeing this beautiful tapestry of life, and I realized in that moment that God is not just sitting here looking at mine and caring about mine, but he is caring for every single person. And that he's seeing how this whole thing is being brought together. And I felt like in that moment, God was like, if you could just see this, if you could see how beautiful all of this is, And I remember in that moment feeling a peace unlike any time that I've ever felt in my entire life because I realized that he did have this plan. And I realized that this plan was totally outside of me, that I wasn't the one in control of it. You know, Matthew 4.18 is when Jesus calls Simon and Peter. He called the disciples into the unknown. They couldn't see the future at all. But they were staring at the Son of God. They trusted him with their future and their lives. You know, Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So we don't have to be scared of the future. If you read the end of the book, we win. He wins. We know our future. The last part of that scripture is the word hope. For me, in the last year, the word hope looks totally different than it did in the past. 
It's because of what I now do for a living. And the word hope is absolutely tied to the very core of actually our mission statement. I work full-time for Dave Ramsey, and I'm a church advisor, so I work with churches and help them get started with Financial Peace University. You know, part of the mission statement is providing hope for everyone, because what happens, kind of walk you through a lot of my day, I'll be sitting there talking to somebody who's requested information, you know, might be a pastor, might be a leader, and they typically have some reason behind why they want to start our class. And a lot of times the pastor will be like, oh, well, our, our church is really struggling. And we can't see how it's going to get any better. So we figure we probably should do something about that. There's always that, that part. It's either one or the other. The other extreme is, I took this, it changed my life, and I, I, I now want to show, share this with other people. So that's typically what happens at the start. But what's really amazing, it's my favorite part about my job, is I get these emails, I get these phone calls after the class is done, and it's a totally different conversation. Because typically they'll be like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that this, uh, these members of our class, you know, they paid off $30,000 in three months by selling some things and working hard and putting a plan together. And even on Friday, I had a pastor that uh, sent me an email. This, he was one of the ones that was extremely skeptical, barely replied to anything, you know, one of those people that request info from you, and then when you call them back, they act like you did something wrong for calling them. And he said, hey, I just want to let you know that my wife and I in the last three months have paid off $18,000, and we can now for the first time of our marriage actually see hope. And it's amazing. So for me, when I hear the word hope, I instantly realize, uh, you know, a few different things. I've seen the impact of what, you know, like a personal budget does for Amber's in my life how much has changed and given us hope, that we can actually see a future. And that wasn't, I didn't just say that to, to be, you know, a little uh, commercial for FPU or for Dave Ramsey, but it really goes in parallel because one of the statistics that's come out lately and one of the things that counselors and, and judges and the people who are handling divorces are telling us is that there's two things that keep coming up on divorces. When people sign the divorce papers, there's two things that keep coming up more than ever before. One is money. The other one's Facebook, actually, believe it or not. Um, but money is one of those things that's, when you don't have any money and you're up to your eyes in debt, you don't feel like you have hope at all. In fact, you feel overwhelmed. So when I keep thinking about hope, that's why I keep going back, to, back and forth with these. Because, you see, God gives us hope in every area of our life. Whether we're dealing with finances, whether we're dealing with marriage, whether you're dealing with a job situation, there is hope. It's just trying to figure out and sort through all the mess to see what God sees in front of us. As the worship team comes up, I want to close with something. Have you ever seen somebody in your life who you can tell without a shadow of doubt has hope? Have you ever seen somebody like that? I think for me, the biggest example, I know we keep talking and I keep bringing up the Olympics, but... How about Michael Phelps? I mean, seriously, has there ever been any, anyone else who, when he gets up on that starting block, has more hope? And what's really interesting is when you zoom, zoom in on his face, and of course they've been doing that, the look on his face is not just like a, grr, like a boxer, eye of the tiger type of rocky type thing. Most of it is almost looks like he's scared to death because he has an absolute respect for what he's about to do. But at the same time, there is no doubt that he has zoned out everybody else in the world because he, has, he is confident in what he has done. His training has been fantastic. It's been better than anyone else. 
and he is confident in what he's about to do. I say that's worked out pretty, pretty well for him considering he has 22 medals and 18 of them uh, are gold. But, you know, the thing that I kept thinking about whenever I was putting this together, because I, I started thinking, you know, there's probably some people here who do feel a lot of hope in a lot of areas of their life. And there's probably people here who feel like they don't have a lot of hope. Whether you're struggling or you feel good, that's both. It can be there. I didn't say that right. Hope can be there or it can be absent at the same time. So us as a church, how can we change that? How can we be a light? How can we offer hope to others? Here's the, here's the challenge. Knowing the stories that I've heard from you guys, the stories that, that I've heard from a lot of other people, we could all use some encouragement. So let's start there. Let's start this week by taking some of the people in our midst and encouraging them, calling them, reaching out to them. If you need a couple examples, David Whetstone just got back from Africa because he has malaria. He is beat down and he's, he needs to recover the Fadleys in India, man, is their whole family. They have been under attack since the moment they got there. I saw Tizra posted on Facebook this morning that Lael has hives over her whole body. There have just been physical things and just so many different things like that, hitting them every single day. How about Darren, Shannon, and their whole family? Not only do they have to put up with us every week, but we absolutely have a pastor who's on mission. I mean, he's in Togo, Africa right now. He did not do that to, to just feel comfortable to go on vacation. He's sleeping on the ground in a tent. He does not like really hot weather. How about Ben Holton? As he's planning to go to Haiti, and he's planning and raising money. He has some pretty amazing things that I know that God's called him to do, but there have been moments that he needs encouraged. And as as a small group, as a community, we've been able to lift him up in our, in our community group that uh, Craig and Bethany lead us. But, you know, we need people all around us. How about Jana and Zach? They have a, a new adventure. They figure out so many details of life. How about people who've already moved, like Jeff and Shannon Gilbert, who moved to California to work with the whosoevers. Some pretty amazing things happening right around us. All of those things I said, and that doesn't even include the people in every single one of your rows. You know, as a church, it's easy to get caught up in what, what things are going on around us in our own life. But it takes some effort to be that message of hope, to be that encouragement to the people all around us. If you are a person who does not feel like you have hope, if you've been struggling seeing a future for you, if you've been in your head and you can't get, that, get out of there, here's two things that I suggest that you start with. One is get, get outside of yourself. If you can zoom out the lens of your life and picture what God is seeing in your life, it's a really good start. For me, those times have come whenever I've been able to take a trip. It might be time to go to Haiti or Africa or place of hope, find someone who you can serve. When you can stop looking at your own life 
and look at somebody else, it's amazing what happens. And the second is I encourage you to seek after the only person who can actually give you hope. And that's our Lord. If you feel alone, worried, scared, if you're battling depression, if you're all of those things and you're not constantly reading the word and praying, you are fighting a losing battle. You will continually spiral in that circle and go nowhere until you change that part of your life. It's time to step up. It's time to stop putting on a little pity party for yourself. It's time to make a change. I don't say that to, ju- to be judgmental or to be hard on anyone. But we only get one life here. And I know for myself, I've spent a lot of time thinking about myself. I know I've spent a lot of time just very introspective in times when I need to be out looking at what God has placed right in front of me. As we sing this last song, you know, we have communion stations over on this side and this side. What a beautiful picture of going together and a good symbolism of what Christ did for us on the cross and take communion. It's also the time that we give of our tithes and offerings. And I can speak from experience. I know that a lot of people have been confused about you know, how does tithing fit into life. And there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors who have probably abused this. And you may be somebody that walked into hearing being manipulated or being con- controlled or something like that. But I'm telling you that when you have a consistent part of your life, which is tithing, you know, that 10% that God asked of us, that was way before the law. And we can talk about that a whole other time. It's not just about the blessings that come from tithing because they are there and I've experienced that firsthand. Sometimes it's just really great to have areas of our life where we recognize that this is not about me. If I truly believe that my money, everything that is mine is the Lord's, then giving up a certain part of that is not a big deal. And just that discipline, that part of life, doing that and surrendering to the Lord, you'll be surprised at how many other areas of your life will change just by doing that. So let's stand and sing another song together. As we stand.